It's good to see you today. Uh, my name's Kyle, so if you're visiting today, I just want to introduce myself to you, lead pastor here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that's where we'll be today. And um, we're going to um, be kind of continuing in our uh, study or sermon series through uh, through the whole Bible, essentially. We're doing a series called The Big Picture, where we've been just looking at what God is doing throughout uh, history from beginning to end, and what does the Bible reveal about that and that kind of thing. So uh, last week, as a part of the big picture, we were in, uh, we were looking at taking a look at King David and how, how God had promised this king and how he had given this kingdom to David. And he says of his throne, there will be no end, that it will rule forever. And we saw that the fulfillment of that was in Christ Jesus. And so, but there were other kings who reigned. And so today we're going to look at a guy named Solomon. We're going to look a little bit uh, at his life through Ecclesiastes and, and some of his experiences. And the whole point of that is to look at uh, God's story of redemption, right? The, the goal is still the same. We're looking at uh, this big picture, this God's story of redemption. We're, we're seeing how God's people uh, will enjoy God's presence within God's place for God's purpose, and how Solomon is an expression of that. And what Solomon teaches us is how to live with wisdom in a world where we're, where we're not yet seeing the final establishment of God's kingdom. In other words, we don't have the new heavens and the new earth yet. All right, We haven't seen the final installment of that. There's still sin. There's still uh, a fleshly desire within us, even as Christians. Our flesh wants to do one thing. Our spirit has been made alive to do something different by the power of God. And so we're seeing how do those two things go together today? And how do we live with wisdom in a world where we're drawn in so many different directions that go against what God's Word has said? How do we understand that? How do we process it? And ultimately, we're asking and kind of answering this question today. How do we live as God's people or how do we live with God in a fallen world, in a world where things are not yet right? The big idea I want to put before you, my thesis this morning, is this, is that Jesus turns the meaningless life into a meaningful life. Jesus turns the meaningless life into a meaningful life. Let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for um, King Solomon. Lord, we thank you for his example. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us to, to see his example, to understand the wisdom that comes through your spirit and helping pen this passage. And Father, we pray uh, that as we understand it, that it would affect the way that we live as your people in this world. Helps to be more and more drawn into fellowship with you, Father, uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So let me just start by reading Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the introduction to the book here. Uh, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So in Ecclesiastes, what we have is the teacher or preacher, depending on which translation you're using. It's a guy faced with the vanity of life, or you might say the meaninglessness of life, that it's without 
meaning. It's, he's trying to find meaning in everything under the sun. He's looking to and fro. He's going in and out of all sorts of fleshly desires. He's not withholding anything from himself. And in the end, what he concludes is that everything on its own is meaningless. So he writes this book. Well, I'm going to put before you this thesis that I think it's Solomon writing this book. I think the book of Ecclesiastes reveals to us that it's Solomon, even though he's not explicitly mentioned. Solomon's life experiences matches the experiences of the author of this book. Uh, when he was young, he asked for wisdom from God. He asked God to grant him wisdom. God granted his request. Solomon uses his great wisdom to rule the kingdom of Israel. Much of his wisdom is now contained in Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and in Ecclesiastes. These books teach us how to live wisely in our day. In fact, a couple of books before them, Job and Psalms, which are not written by Solomon, uh, they also teach us how to live with wisdom before God in the midst of suffering and pain and joy and peace and etc. Right, All the other uh, feelings that come in life. But Solomon was a greedy, or he became anyway, a greedy, lustful, power-hungry, idolatrous fool. He violated the kingly commands of Deuteronomy 17. He accumulated, and this is how he violated them, he accumulated possessions for himself, large quantities of possessions for himself. He accumulated wealth, large quantities of wealth for himself, the most wealthy man to ever have walked the face of the earth. Uh, he accumulated uh, large quantities of women for himself, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Insane. His heart was pulled toward false gospels, which is the warning in Deuteronomy 17 for doing such things, that your heart will be for, uh, pulled towards uh, false gods. I think I said false gospels, but same thing, false gods, right? He didn't deny himself anything that his heart desired. Anything that his eyes sought to have, he took. It was his. He took it for his pleasure. He took it for his gain, uh, and he ruined his kingdom. Though not a fact, tradition says that Ecclesiastes reveals an older, repentant Solomon. Solomon writing maybe at the end of his life, thinking back on his life and what he had learned and what he had done, and now writing it as a warning uh, for his son, as we see in chapter 12, but also uh, for us. And we have no way to verify this, but the tone of the book certainly suggests that kind of thing taking place. Uh, and so the message of Ecclesiastes is just as relevant today as it was then. We think to ourselves all the time, if I could just have more money, if I could just have those, that extra amount of dollars, if I could just have more pleasure, if I could just have more success, if I could just marry the right person, if I could just fill in the blank with whatever your heart currently desires, if I could just have that thing, then I'd really be happy. Then my life would really be meaningful. It would really matter. But Solomon, he had everything. Solomon had anything that he wanted. Solomon tried everything. Anything that he thought, man, maybe that's the ticket. Maybe that's the thing. He did it. And he, he did it happily. He did it with no um, problems. It was easy for him to do this because he had so much wealth. He had so much of everything. But in the end, he tells us, no, all of that is meaningless. It's vanity of vanities. 
And vanity of vanities is the writer's way of saying it's the meaningless-est of meaningless, right? Like it's the most meaningless that it could be. It's, it's the absolute bottom of meaning. It doesn't matter. Like that's what the writer is saying here when he says vanity of vanities. He's saying meaningless-est of meaningless, right? Why? Why is life that way? I'm going to suggest to you in a moment that we feel this in our own lives. But why is life this way? Well, when man rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3, as we looked at early on in this series, when man rebels against God, a frustrating curse was brought on the world. Nothing works right. Everything has been fractured. It's been broken. And it's up to God now to redeem it or restore it, including the human heart. But all of creation is this way. It deals with disease. It deals with death. It deals with poverty. It deals with evil and injustice and more and more. And all of those things characterize our existence in this world. They've characterized the existence of humanity post-fall. It's frustrating. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that the whole earth has been subjected to futility by mankind's rebellion. And that it groans now for the rescue, that it eagerly awaits at the return of Jesus Christ, that it will be restored. The whole earth will be redeemed at the return of Christ. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Amen? Behold, Christ says from the throne in Revelation, I am making all things new. And so we live in a cursed meaningless existence where our broken nature is bound to seek lasting joy in things that eventually let us down. That's the reality of life under the sun that Solomon reveals to us in this book. Now let's look a little further. I'm going to read to you verses uh, 3 through 18 here. Ecclesiastes 1, 3 through 18. So just kind of bear with me as we go through this or read along. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on the circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You see what he's describing? He's describing just an, a cyclical event to life, right? That everything just keeps coming and going. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already, and the age is before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So in other words, he's saying that we don't remember stuff now, but all of y'all in the future, we're not gonna rem they're not going to remember past y'all what y'all did, right? That's my redneck way of saying it. I, the preacher, have been the king over Israel and Jerusalem. This is what helps us understand that this is most likely Solomon. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. 
What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. He's saying, I, I tried wisdom, I tried madness and folly, all of it's striving after wind. For in much vexation, or sorry, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In verse 3, we have Solomon, and he's looking at the question of meaning from an earthly perspective. Solomon is essentially saying, listen, if this world is all there is, if, if this life is all there is, if there's no God, if there's no afterlife, there's no final judgment, there's nothing, we're just here and then we're gone, then everything is meaningless. This is the problem with atheists, right? Jesus asked a similar question. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says this. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. Listen, what you make, what you learn, what you grow in, however popular you become, all of those things are meaningless if it's without Christ. Life without God is pointless. The natural cycles that we see in verses 4 through 11 demonstrate that all of our activity essentially is pointless because nothing changes despite a whole lot of activity, a whole lot of doing, yet nothing changes. The poem paints the picture that we are embedded into this monotonous cycle. The task is never done, it's stuck on repeat. There's no satisfaction. The universe is trapped in this cycle that never produces anything, and our experiences in life mirror this. I have a friend who's here today, Mike Bradshaw. He has this saying. He says, it's the same thing, but different. Right? And that's the way life is. It's the same thing, but different. It's just the same thing all the time, but different. We all feel this frustration. Right? We feel it with dishes. We, we feel the frustration with laundry. It's never finished. We feel the frustration with work. People try to break free from this monotony. They will dive into midlife crises. They'll dive into an affair with someone. They'll dive into a new job. They'll say, hey, let's, let's just move to a new city. Let's try something different. Let's change our scenery. Only to find out that they're chasing wind. Unhappiness persists because you never dealt with your lack of contentment. Unhappiness persists because you never dealt with your lack of contentment. Contentment is not found in the pursuit of new things. Contentment is found in the godly acceptance with thanksgiving of what God has already given you. Contentment is found in praising God when He gives and takes away, as Job says. It's to honor Him in all things. The teacher concludes that all of life is full of weariness in verse 8. He says it's full of weariness. It's a striving after when. You can't say enough because there's always more to say. You can't see enough because there's always more sights. You can't hear enough because there's always more knowledge. There's always more gossip, more songs, more jokes. 
all of those things we think would bring more meaning to our life. The Rolling Stones in one of their songs rightly said, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. Our fleshly desires, as they're experiencing, our fleshly desires are never fulfilled. We aren't happy or content in ourselves or in our strivings. We always want more. We are chasing wind. Honestly, we live our entire lives this way. I can remember being a child thinking, man, if I were just, you know, 12, (laughs) if I were just 13, if I were just 16, I'd be able to drive. If I were just 18, I could graduate high school. I could go to college. Once I graduate college, I can get a real job. If I could just get to that, and then, then I might get married and have children. If I could just get to those places, that would be the pinnacle of life. And then you get there and you think, man, if I just had a better job, right? We're striving after wind. It starts from our youth. We are restless from our youth. If I can just get there, wherever there is, right? You've all probably had these thoughts this year. If I could just get to 2021, right? Well, most likely not. We need to learn contentment in 2020. In fact, maybe 2020 is a blessing from God in our lives if we'll see it that way an opportunity to learn lasting contentment, to learn when everything is kind of being stripped away from our eyes and from our possession, that we can be ultimately content in the Lord. And so we'll think, if I could just get there, everything will be different. But when you get there, nothing is different. Maybe for a short season. You just want to find the next there, right? just striving after the next there, after the wind called there. And it's an exhausting way to live. It's exhausting. I think the preacher here makes this crystal clear in Ecclesiastes 1, 9-11. I'm just going to read it back to you. He says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after us. There's nothing new under the sun, he says. Nothing changes. And you might say, well, we could say, see, this is new with like technological advances. But that doesn't change the teacher's point. Technological advances don't squash the teacher's point that nothing's new. It's all striving after wind. Alistair Begg, a great preacher, says uh, on this point of see this is new, he says, yes, we put a man on the moon, but there was nothing for him to do there except stare at the earth or to marvel at the stars or all those things around him. The fundamental events of life remain the same. There's birth, there's friendships, there's hardships, there's joys, there's uh, potentially marriage or family, there's work, there's death. You see, humans are the same bunch of sinners that we've always been. And nothing we have done or will do makes a difference when it comes to that. We're in need of something better. We're in need of lasting fulfillment, something that truly satisfies Ultimately, no one will be remembered on this earth. 
Sure, we remember some of the names from our history books, but what about the billions who've lived and are now forgotten? What meaning does your life really hold when you pursue vain things? We're here for seven, eight decades, maybe nine or ten if we're fortunate, then we're forgotten. Moses in his wisdom psalm is what I call it in, in chapter 90 of Psalms. He says this, he says, The years of your life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone and we fly away. Death is the great equalizer. None of us are outrunning death. Faced with this somewhat sad reality, Solomon searches for meaning and satisfaction, but he learns that nothing satisfies. I'm going to reread verses 12 through 18. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. and He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So again, all of our activity is like chasing wind. The teacher, the preacher is saying it does not matter where or how you try to find meaning that you will fail in those pursuits. He has seen and done it all and he came back empty. And we need to listen to the words of Solomon here. Verse 15 is a proverb. It's used to explain the situation. Right? Crooked is a metaphor for sin or moral brokenness in the wisdom literature. And why is the world in this state? Because of it's because of human sin. Solomon writes later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29, he says, I have discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. And this is what we see with Adam and Eve in the very beginning. Made upright, pursued many schemes. Humanity has gone its own way against God's design. My sin, your sin, the sin of all is equal to going our own way. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You see, we try to find ways out of the brokenness, but we only end up further down the pit of broken things, further with our heads into the barrel and our feet sticking out of the top of broken things. No amount of pleasurable experiences, no amount of job success or religious ritual can fix what is broken in us. All, as we will see, God imposed this futility, this meaninglessness out of His goodness. This is grace that we experience life in this way. This is grace and that we experience the meaninglessness of life as we go into all of these vain pursuits because it's in hope that we would long for and hope in Him. 
When we get to the end of our pursuits and we find nothing but vexation, we find nothing but frustration, we then are left with one turn. It's to turn to Christ Jesus, to make Him Lord and to find ultimate satisfaction. You see, life doesn't fulfill because life is not meant to fulfill. Christ is meant to fulfill. The teacher even says he applied his heart to know madness and folly. Solomon was wiser than anyone and it didn't bring meaning to his life. As we read in Ecclesiastes, he also partied harder than anyone else and that didn't work either. He tried it all. The right way, the wrong way, only chasing wind. One commentator says that Ecclesiastes gives us a bleak look on life, but the Spirit had a purpose for inspiring this book to be written. He wants to expose the meaninglessness of life in a cursed world in order to create hunger for something better. You see, this life creates in us a hunger for something better. In other words, what Ecclesiastes is wanting to do, what Solomon through writing this book is wanting to do for us is to push us to faith and contentment in God alone. Tim Keller, uh, pastor, points out, he says, either there is a God above with a standard who will judge us at the end based on that standard, or life is totally meaningless. Either there is a God and your life has meaning, or there is no God, and as Ernest Hemingway said, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. Keller goes on, people think Christians are naive. But if your origin is insignificant, and if your destiny is insignificant, then you must have the guts to admit that your life is also insignificant. Amen? Christians are not naive. We are not to be pitied above anyone. We have the greatest hope imaginable. Our life means something because it's found in Christ alone. Deep in our hearts, we know this to be true. And we know this to be true because Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 reveals that God has put in us a desire for uh, heavenly things. Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has put eternity into man's heart. He's done it in such a way that he can't quite figure it out. Why? Because the answer to the equation is Christ. The answer to the equation is God himself. So we have eternity put into our hearts. We have the, the need for eternity, the need for lasting things, the need for fulfillment. The need for a happiness that goes beyond this life. We have that need in us because God put it there. And we find the answer to that need in God alone. So nothing else satisfies. We know what we do matters in some way, but we also know that the world is a mess. Again, it's a mess because God has imposed a curse on the world in response to human rebellion with the purpose that frustration would ultimately drive us to Him. The Holy Spirit inspires the book of Ecclesiastes to convict you of your meaninglessness, to help you see it firsthand that life without God is meaningless. He wants to expose that in order to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 says that we are groaning for rescue, just like the earth. 
Just like the rest of creation, we're groaning for redemption. And that's where Ecclesiastes takes us in its conclusion. Flip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I'm going to, be, I'm going to read verses 8 through 14. Here we are again at the end of the book. Much has been written. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Meaningless est of meaningless. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes can't be rightly understood apart from the conclusion. You leave out chapter 12, you will sob yourself to sleep after reading Ecclesiastes. There is no hope in the book, hardly. And then you get to chapter 12 and you're like, oh man, here, here's the big crescendo. Here's what Solomon wants us to understand. He starts again with the main point that everything is meaningless. <laughs> Just like a good preacher ought to, he's saying what he said and he's saying it again, right? He calls the teacher a wise man. He refers to himself as a wise man, that the words of his book are delightful. They give a true portrait of how the world works. But he says these words are like goads. You know what a goad is? A goad is a cattle prod. It's a stick with a pointed end on it. It's used to, to push cattle along. Make them move. He says, these words, these wise words are like cattle prods for your rear end. That you'll get it in shape, right? That you'll move towards the direction of wise living. That you'll understand that all of the matter of life is this, to fear God and keep His commandments probing you, right? The words of Ecclesiastes are that way. They sting and they convict. Yet, they move us in the right direction. They move us towards Christ. They move us towards His fulfillment, lasting fulfillment in the salvation of Christ. But where do the words come from? Well, I love the, the messianic picture we have here. Solomon says these words are given by what? One shepherd. One shepherd. You see, Ecclesiastes points to, Solomon is pointing to and longing for the Messiah to come and order his kingdom by wisdom. He understands that the end of his throne will not happen, that there is coming one who will reign forever on the throne of David. And to emphasize this, Solomon tells his son that study is wearisome, that there is no end to making books, Right? I mean, there are new books coming out every year. Some of them are really good. Some of them are just hot garbage. But there's new books every year. There are people sharing wisdom all the time. We're, never, we're, we're always learning and never arriving at knowledge. 
He's pleading with the son not to try something that's already been tried. Don't go the way that I've gone. And in that way, Solomon is pleading with you, don't go the way that I have gone. Don't pursue vanity. Solomon's saying what all good parents say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> Just kidding. The conclusion points forward to Jesus. The end of the matter is to fear God and keep His commandments. It's the purpose of man, to fear God and keep His commandments. It's a reverent awe that leads to obedience. It really starts as a fear of the one who's coming to judge, right? And that fear is turned to reverent awe when you see Christ Jesus as Lord. Then you're in awe of God. And you're willing at that moment to be obedient to God because you understand the great love with which He has for us. And out of that love, you want to love Him back by obeying His commandments. Our obligation to God is to reverently fear Him and obey Him. That's God's design for us. Why? Well, the reason to trust and obey is that God will bring every deed into judgment. This is what Solomon says. Every deed will come into judgment, along with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, if I told you next Sunday we're going to come in and I've got this machine that I can set up down here, and, and before you can come in the doors, you're going to have to get into this machine. You're going to have to hook your head up to this thing. And it's going to expose every one of your sins that are in the dark before you can come into this place. We're going to do it for our own protection. We're going to make sure you're not a murderer. We're going to make sure you're not a, a whatever, right? How many of y'all are coming back next week? <laughs> one of you. Good. Praise God. Be me and you, Miss Kay. I love it. You see, we we're happy to sit in here as long as the people next to us don't know our sins. But God has you're exposed as nothing but naked before Him. And we need to be really careful about how we treat sin as trivial before a holy God when we're saying that if you knew my sins, I wouldn't come sit next to you, right? We want to be careful about that because there is coming a day when every sin will be brought to light. Now, for some of you, by God's grace, that'll happen in this life. It's a gracious thing to have sin exposed, is it not? It's a gracious thing. It's a hurtful, painful process. It's a gracious thing. But there are those whose sin will not be exposed because they're doing nothing but running from the Lord now until their final breath. They'll be exposed on that final day. And the difference between exposing your sin now before God who already knows your sin and confessing that sin to Him and turning from sin, turning towards the Lord, the difference between doing that and not doing that is on that final day when your sins are exposed, you'll point to Jesus Christ. You'll say, my older brother's got me today, God. 
Christ will cover you happily with His righteousness. So if you came in next week and we expose sins, we had that machine, that thing existed, that technology happened. I mean, we're getting closer to that kind of stuff probably. <laughs> but if that thing were here, there'd be no reason for you to not come down front and happily be hooked up to that thing and say, Christ has covered it all. Christ has covered it all. Forgive me of my sins, but Christ has covered it all. And so we don't willingly sin that grace might abound all the more, right? Romans 6.1. We don't do that. We don't do that. But when our sin is exposed, we humble ourselves before the Lord, and we confess and we repent, meaning we turn from those sins and we run to Christ. We flee to Him. The world is crooked. Things are not right. There needs to be a reckoning to set things right. A final judgment looms over us. It is coming one day. It might not be in this life. I mean, there, there, there are preachers all over the country who are super excited about 2020. It gives them all the reason in the world to think that Christ is coming this year. I'm here to tell you the world has had awful years from its inception. And we don't know the day or the hour, so we need to treat today like it's the day and the hour, and we need to live rightly before God. But I'm not here standing before you trying to scare you into Christ's return. I'm just saying it's going to happen at some point, and if it doesn't happen in your life, you will die and meet Him one day. You'll stand before Him. And so we must take sin seriously. We must take it serious enough to take it to the cross to lay it at the foot of Christ, to say, you cover this in your perfection. Grant me your righteousness and my humility. Amen? We can't stand proud before the Lord. On that day, it won't matter if I point to, to Chase and say, well, you don't know Chase. That's, <laughs> if, that's the, if that's the barometer we're in, right? But it's not. It's the righteousness of Christ. And none of us are meeting that righteousness apart from Christ Himself intervening. Turn your life to Him. So Ecclesiastes says that even the hidden things will be brought to light. We're going to face judgment. And the bad news of that is that we've fallen short. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This reality is meant to crush us. It's meant to crush the pride that we have. It's meant to make us humble before God that we might be driven in our humility to Jesus Christ. You see, here's the good news. Jesus lived the life that you can't live. Jesus was the better Solomon. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life without sin. He didn't waste his kingship or ruin his kingdom. In fact, he brought his kingdom to us. And he did it not through gaining wealth and possessions and wives and concubines. That would be disobedience to God. He did it by being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. He dies the death that you and I deserve to die. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He took the entire curse of sin and death on Himself in order to redeem us from the curse. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 
The writer of Hebrews says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. What joy? What joy? What joy is there in going to the cross? It was the joy of seeing people, the people of God redeemed. It was the joy of God's people being able to finally, once again, enjoy God's presence within God's place for God's purpose. And now, right now, by repenting of your sin, repenting from your vanity, and turning in faith to Jesus Christ, He will redeem you. And He'll give you a new and meaningful life. You see, there is one thing new under the sun. It's all those who are made new creations in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To obey God is to be truly human. In the beginning, humanity sought to become like God and it disobeyed God. Now, if you will obey God by believing in His Son's life, death, and resurrection, you will become truly human. That is, you will be exactly how He made you to be, an image bearer of God for His glory. 1 John 3, 23-24 says, and, and this is His commandment. This is the commandment of God that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. You see, it's the Spirit of God that makes you alive. It's the Spirit of God that testifies that you are His. When you're finding life meaningless and you feel a bit of condemnation, you feel uh, some conviction in that as a Christian, that's the Spirit of God intervening in your life. Driving you back to the cross of Christ. Telling you, don't pursue vain pursuits. There's meaning. There's meaning for your life in the cross of Christ. There's meaning for your life in Jesus Himself. You see, Jesus turns this meaningful, meaningless life into a meaningful life. C.S. Lewis has this great quote. He says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, so if you think it's a bad thing to desire your own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it, most people think that's a bad thing. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Not too strong, but too weak. He goes on to say, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily satisfied. See, that's our problem. It's not that we want so much pleasure. It's that we're too easily satisfied with the little pleasures. We're not interested in the pleasure being offered to us by God. 
You see, Jesus says in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and what? Life more abundantly. You see, there's not less life in Christ. There's more life in Christ. There's all of life in Christ. The less life is found in letting the desires of your heart direct your life. Now, instead of seeking satisfaction and meaning in created things, you are able to be fully satisfied in the Creator through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Satisfied in Him forever, you can now rightly enjoy the life that He has given you. And you can enjoy it as a means to worship Him in all the earth. A guy by the name of St. Augustine said this, he said, if the things of this world delight you, praise God for them. But turn your love away from them and give it to their Maker. In other words, praise God for the good things in life, but praise Him for it. Don't let your affections fall on the stuff. That is what a meaningful life looks like. It's a life fully satisfied in Christ Jesus. It's a life fully content in God. Whatever it is that He gives you in life, whether pain and toil or joy and peace, we are singing, blessed be the name of the Lord. I urge you, cry out in confession before the Lord. Tell Him, I've tried to find meaning in these, this thing or that thing. Or this person or that person. And all of those, God, are not you. I'm looking to someone or something else for ultimate satisfaction. And I want to repent of that today, Lord. Transform my heart. Transform my desires that I might find meaning in you alone. St. Augustine again adds a wonderful quote here. He says, Thou has made us for thyself. God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Listen, if your heart is restless today, it's going to continue to be restless until you turn to God alone. It was made for Him, and it's restless until it's found in Him. Trust the Lord today with all of your life. I'm not speaking to unbelievers today. I mean, I am, in a sense, I'm, but I'm speaking to you believers, encouraging you. Find rest in God today. This year has been tough. Find rest in God today. Maybe life for you has been tough in the last couple of years, last few years, last few months, last few days, I don't know, last few hours. All of the above. Are you seeking God? Wholeheartedly seeking God? If you're not, then you can't say back to me, well, I've tried that or I've tried God. You haven't yet. Seek Him wholeheartedly. Fast from food. Take a break from things. Do whatever it takes to put your heart before God alone and to get that thing right. It's the only thing that matters for eternity. All has been said. The end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. Amen? This is the whole duty of man. I'm going to encourage you with two verses. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed 
happy, joyful is the man who takes refuge in God. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Meaning, He'll give you new desires. And those desires from God will be fulfilled. You'll know fulfillment. Delight yourself in the Lord. Taste and see that He is good. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you, Lord, for uh, your word to us. I pray now, Father, that you help us to know you fully. Lord, help us to find our rest in you alone, to know nothing other than fear of the Lord and keeping your commandments, following you. Lord, commandments are not some dutiful thing just to be experienced begrudgingly. When your command is that we believe in Jesus Christ, your Son, for the salvation of our souls, what a gracious command that is. When your command is that we would love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul and strength, what a gracious command that is. That you're sending us to the one thing that will satisfy our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. When your command is to come to you, all who are heavy laden and weary, and you'll give us rest, what a wonderful command that is. When your command is, come to me, all who are thirsty and hungry, and I will fill you up, that all who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness will be filled, what a wonderfully gracious command that is. God, help us to not think about commands as all the do's and don'ts as though we're a child again receiving those from our parents. And our inclination is to just rebel against that. But help us to see, Father, that you, the creator of life itself, has told us how to have real life and you've commanded us to pursue the things that give us real life. Help us to see how gracious that is. You're not withholding a thing from us. You're giving us real life. And now what we see is that we are far too easily pleased, as Lewis said. That our desires are not strong enough. They're weak. And so we're enjoying a mud pie in the slums when you've offered to us a vacation at the sea. Lord, help us. Help us get to the end of our rope. If 2020 could do nothing else than that, what a beautiful year it will have been. If this is the year we finally come to the end of our own striving, the end of our own gain, the end of our own uh, working and working and working, if this year makes us stop and pause and think. Lord, help us stop and pause and think. Father, we're but sojourners on our way to a heavenly homeland. We're exiles. Lord, help us to find our home with you. Help us to find rest in God alone. 
Lord, I pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.